Thanks for listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, where we take a deeper look at the issues and people shaping our community and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, here as always with my illustrious co-host, Jeff Simmons. Hi, Jeff. Happy Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And happy AAPI Heritage Month to you as well. So we're going to be talking much more about Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month and AAPI political participation this hour. But first, we do want to take just a moment to remind you, WBAI can only bring you this kind of program and all the others we keep on the FM dial with your help. Please take a moment today to go to WBAI.org and support this station. Do your part to support nonprofit, non-corporate radio through the BAI Buddies program. BAI Buddies give a recurring monthly donation that helps us stay on the air 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So just go to WBAI.org to give in any amount that works for you. That's WBAI.org. And we have a special gift to offer our listeners who give to this station in the name of Driving Forces, right, Jeff? Yes, Celeste. And I really cannot stop thinking about this book since we had the author on uh, earlier this year. It is a book called Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. The author is Daniel Knowles, Midwest correspondent for The Economist. He was really kind enough to join us on the program not too uh, long ago. We had a fascinating discussion about what cars are really doing to our city and our world. And New Yorkers, especially WBAI listeners, know what an important topic this is. So for the first few people who give us just $50, we want to raise, you know, 200 a little more today. If you give us just $50, we'll be proud to send you a copy of this brilliant book. So just go to WBAI.org and look for the big green button, or you can call 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950. Thank you once again for supporting WBAI. You're listening to Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston and Jeff Simmons. So today we want to pause and commemorate Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. This is a time of year when we stop to think about and celebrate the history of and contributions of members of the AAPI community, our neighbors, family, friends, co-workers. Hey, you might just be listening to an Asian American on the radio right now. Hi, everybody. So here's something you may not know. According to the Pew Research Center, the Asian American demographic was the fastest growing sector of the U.S. population between 2000 and 2019, rising by an incredible 81 percent during that time. The Asian population of the United States went from 10.5 million to nearly 19 million. So the equivalent of the entire population of the state of New York. The vast majority of Asian Americans trace their roots to China. The second largest group of people is of Indian descent, followed by people whose heritage is Filipino, Vietnamese, and Korean. But there are many other groups here. The list really, really does go on, Jeff. And the Asian American population is set to reach 46 million people by the year 2060. That's not that far off if you think about it. But also consider this. Although the Asian American population is growing, 
at the fastest rate of any demographic group, or maybe it is, uh, uh, because it is, Asian Americans report experiencing very high rates of discrimination and harassment. In a Pew survey conducted in March of 2021, so about a year into the COVID pandemic in our country, fully 87% of Asian Americans said there is either a lot or some discrimination against them in society. Although the Asian American population is growing fast, it's still a relatively small percent of the overall population. As of the 2020 census, Asian Americans accounted for just over 6% of all Americans. So for that reason and others, we're over, often overlooked. And when we are considered or researched, different groups are often lumped together, when in reality there are broad variations in culture, language, and more. One way to change that, of course, is through political participation and representation, which brings us right to our first guest today. Congresswoman Grace Meng represents the 6th District in Queens. She is the first and the only Asian American member of Congress from the state of New York. Congresswoman Meng is on the House Appropriations Committee, the first vice chair of the Congressional Asian, Asian Pacific American Caucus, a co-chair of the House Bipartisan Task Force for Combating Anti-Semitism, and a vice chair of the LGBTQ plus Equality Caucus. She's worked on many, many things during her six terms in Congress, but those relevant to today's topic include passing the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act into law and championing a National Museum of Asian Pacific American History and Culture. Before she joined Congress, she was a public interest lawyer and a member of the New York State Assembly, which is where I first met her. Congresswoman Grace Meng, thank you for joining us here today on WBAI. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back. So just wanted to start out with what is foremost on your mind this AAPI Heritage Month, personally or professionally or both? Well, this month is uh, a celebratory month. It's a great time to recognize the amazing contributions that our community has made in shaping this country. Uh, it's also uh, important that we recognize uh, the traumas that the community has faced in this country's history. But most exciting for me is that it's not just Asian Americans um, celebrating the Heritage Month, but there's so many other allies showing solidarity and, and having celebrations as well. So we, before we get to some of the good stuff, I do want to take a moment to focus on something that we mentioned a little bit earlier in the intro, but that has been really difficult for, for a lot of us to watch and for a lot of us to experience. During the pandemic, members of the AAPI community, including in New York, have experienced a lot of harassment and even violence, physical violence. I'm wondering what you think about what the situation is with that now. Is this improving? And then going ahead, how do we address this? How do we resolve it? Yeah, um, thank you for that question. It, it has been a really painful uh, few years. Uh, not only has this country been going through this pandemic, um, but we've seen the Asian American community uh, endure uh, an increase in, in, in uh, discrimination from, from verbal attacks to physical uh, assault. And so um, what is this problem is not going to be solved overnight. It, of course, was exacerbated by their former president using really incendiary and racist language, you know, calling the, uh, the virus like Kung Flu virus and China virus and really putting a target on the backs of the Asian American community. Um, and although 
the number skyrocketed during that time, we know that the discrimination suffered by the community is not something that is brand new. Um, so the solution will be long-term and, and complex. Um, one of the reasons uh, you had mentioned my Hate Crimes Act that was signed into law actually exactly two years ago, it's the anniversary, um, basically requiring the federal government, like the Justice Department, to pay more attention and to work with local law enforcement to grassroots organizations to making sure that we as a country are taking these bias incidents and hate crimes more seriously. Um, and we do think that, uh, you know, things, things are getting better, but there are still cases happening. Um, and so just trying to raise awareness about the importance of speaking out and also uh, addressing um, the hate crimes and, and the bias incidents. Congress member, it's great to have you on the show today. And full disclosure, you are now my Congress member due to the change in the congressional line. So I'm sure I'll be Yay. seeing you a lot more, although I often see you here in Queens. Um, AAPI are increasingly active in voting and running for office, but there still are barriers to participation and representation is not yet on par with the population. We'd love your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, we. It, it, you're right. It's not yet on par with population, but we have made you know, tremendous progress in the last few years. Just look at the numbers of increased uh, elected officials in, from the community at the city council level and at the state legislator uh, level. It's very exciting. Um, our community is the fastest growing ethnic group in this country, and we want to make sure that whether we're running for office or whether we are registering our community to vote, that we are continuing to exercise our voice in politics. Oftentimes, statistics and surveys show that Asian American community members are not reached out to by either party. Um, and so that's something that we are continuing our focus on, reminding candidates, reminding political parties, and even people who conduct polling and surveys that they should please pay attention and include uh, the community. And Congresswoman, just to stay on that for a moment, you yourself, as we mentioned, are the first and the only Asian American member of the House from the state of New York. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that experience has been like for you and whether you experienced any difficulties in getting involved in public life and in elected office. Maybe people who are listening to this are saying, well, you know, I might like to do that. That sounds that sounds like something I could do. But but I'm just concerned that, you know, it will be so difficult for me or it will be an unpleasant experience for me. Well, I guarantee it won't be easy, but I will say that people may be more prepared than they thought, right? Like, you don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to have uh, a fancy title uh, to, to run for office or whether you're running for office or you want to get involved in a campaign and volunteer and see what it's like. I really encourage people to do so. And in fact, uh, I encourage students, especially high school and college students, to do that, even if they have no interest in politics. It is great experience to be able to advocate and to talk to strangers about issues that that you care about uh, is a great skill, whatever you, you uh, whatever field you decide to go into. Um, and so it's really important to me that 
uh, we keep the focus. Uh, I always, when I talk to candidates who are running for office, you know, I remind them that they should please reach out to the Asian American community, uh, and that means putting out materials and conducting outreach in multiple languages, which sounds common sense, but it's, it's harder to do than, than it seems, and a lot of people don't do it. So that's something that we're continuously trying to, to remind people. But just to get involved in whatever way you feel comfortable. If you just tuned in, this is Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, and as always, streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and so Celeste Katz and, and I, Jeff Simmons, are talking to Congresswoman Grace Meng of Queens. Congressmember, you passed legislation last year relating to establishing a national AAPI museum. Can you give us an update on where that stands? Sure. We're really excited. President Biden signed into law my bill to start the initial step on creating a national museum uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, the first step is for an eight-person commission, which is bicameral, bipartisan. Uh, these eight commissioners will uh, begin the process of basically the logistics of creating and maintaining our museum. Everything from finding a venue to fundraising plans, things like that. Um, six out of the eight commissioners have been appointed. We're now waiting on Speaker McCarthy to select his final two commissioners, um, and then hopefully the process will officially uh, get kick-started. And Congresswoman Grace Meng, you have also talked about something that I find really interesting. Uh, you've co-sponsored legislation in regards to the teaching of AAPI history in schools. And I'm just wondering, what was your impetus for doing this? And do you think that this could help with a couple of the issues that we see here, which is one, Asian Americans as a whole being treated as a monolith, or the issue of the quote-unquote model minority myth? Yeah, definitely all of that. I think I really um, saw the need for this even more during the pandemic, uh, you know, with these stereotypes that some people held about, you know, people literally telling, accusing me personally of bringing the virus uh, to the United States, to my constituents. Like, these were things that people were saying to me. And it just really made me realize, like, gosh, people still think of us as foreigners. Uh, we are perpetual outsiders. And at what point, like, what can we do to prove that we are just as American as everyone else? And so it just made me think, you know, even though I grew up and went to school in New York City, um, I don't think I really learned or read that much about the contributions of AAPI to this country. You know, at most it was a line or two in a history book, but anything that I really learned in depth was more like a course, like an elective course in college or, or something like that. And so I, I want to try to do this nationally, and we are seeing movements in various states, including our own state of New York. Uh, Assemblywoman Grace Lee and Senator John Liu are pushing state legislation, um, but we want to try to do this federally where... API history will be taught uh, as part of the school curriculum so people can see that we've been here since the 1700s and we have helped 
literally helped build this country. You know, Congressmember, it's interesting as you're speaking, I'm thinking about way back when, when, you know, what I learned, what I did not learn. And I can't remember anything like that. You know, in all my lessons, <laughs> there's so much more these days that I feel like we should be introducing, uh, you know, to kids as young as, as possible uh, about a variety of communities. So, uh, you know, I'm glad to hear that you're, you've been pushing for this. You know, I know we only have a few minutes left, probably about five or so uh, minutes left. Um, wanted to just at, see what else you're working on right now that's important to your district in Queens or New York City and state. Sure. Well, some of the issues may not be the most exciting issues, but I will say uh, some of these issues that we are getting the most calls on. Uh, one of them is combat, combating mail theft. Uh, we are seeing this not just in New York City, but across the country. And so our daily work entails helping constituents recovering stolen mail. That sometimes includes important documents and money. There are issues of uh, identity theft. Um, and so we are really pushing the Postal Service uh, to take more action in, in addressing this. Um, flooding and infrastructure remains an issue. Everyone talks about what happened over a year ago after Hurricane Ida when Queens, my home borough, lost uh, a high number of family members um, due to flooding. Um, and so we've been trying to work to make sure that a lot of this federal infrastructure money and other grants actually reach the ground here uh, in Queens and we're able to uh, prevent homes from being flooded. And Congressmember, another issue I just want to bring up, I had read that you are one of a number of House representatives uh, who asked the president to or the administration to increase the use of parole and eliminate the 150 day wait period for asylum seekers to apply for work authorization. Obviously, I mean, you woke up like me this morning. This continues to be to dominate discussion and headlines here in New York City. Can you talk a little about that and, you know, what you think or how you think the city has responded to this crisis? Sure. I know that a lot of people are concerned. A lot of stories are out there. Some are true. Some are false. Uh, you know, there are people pushing false stories, like the, the ones where veterans were kicked out. Uh, I think it was Orange County, New yeah, York, yeah. Uh, for these migrants. And we found out that story was, was likely false. Um, I don't support, personally, I don't support the city's decision to put um, families in our public school gymnasiums. Um, but I do think that, you know, there is a bipartisan push to try to get or to speed up the process for people to get work authorization. Um, and so that's something we're, we're supportive of. We're seeing um, maybe the governor uh, could declare an emergency. Um, and so we're, we're in discussions trying to get more money from the federal government uh during this budget process uh, to help the situation in New York as well. And on that on that topic, Congresswoman Meng, of course, you've seen the reports about uh, suggestions for possibly housing asylum seekers uh, in a facility on Rikers Island. Uh, as a representative from Queens, just wondering what you think about uh, even the possibility of that happening, even a discussion of that happening. Yeah, I don't think that's the ideal solution. Our, our solutions need to be more holistic. It's not just about finding someone a bed to sleep in. It's about making sure that they are in a place where they can be able to put 
ultimately work, uh, to be able to commute to work. Um, and so just finding a bed somewhere in the middle of nowhere uh, is not going to be the solution. I want to jump in with one other topic because I need to applaud you, Congress member, on this because my firm where I work has suffered from what I'm about to bring up a number of times in the last few months, and it's horrible. You uh, took action to urge the Postal Service to do more to combat mail theft, and we're not the only ones. I've talked with a number of people who've been facing this in the last few months. What's you know what what has happened with your proposal you know or did you get a response from them has anything happened is the situation as far as you know getting any better? Yeah, um, so the situation I, I'm not satisfied with the progress that we're making. I will say that I was relieved to hear the postal service announce just in the last few days measures that they were taking to improve, uh, for example, locks on certain of their mail storage facilities. Uh, we're still waiting for more details on how that would affect Queens and New York City. Um, there is a gap between the Postal Police and the NYPD in terms of their jurisdiction and what they are each allowed to do or if they have enough resources to do so. So we need to uh, tighten up those gaps uh, in terms of the Postal Police. But we're actually, and uh, I guess this is breaking news, but we are working uh, to bring together physically people from the USPS, the NYPD, our local community boards, and even our banks to try to be in one room and come up with more effective solutions. Because, yes, everyone's concerned, but we need everyone in the same room versus what's happening now where they're just pointing fingers at each other. And just to bring it back to our topic today of AAPI Heritage Month, uh, Congresswoman Meng, wanted to ask you about uh, what's happening with your proposal to make Lunar New Year a federal holiday. I know it's a, a very steep hill to climb. There's always a lot of pushback to adding federal holidays, in part because of the cost of having another day off for the federal workforce. But where are we on that? Yeah, I know it's not going to be an easy hill to climb, but that's also what they said when I was in the state legislature and we were pushing for the holidays of Lunar New Year and, and Eid um, and continued to push for school holidays for Diwali at the city level. And, and we got it done for Eid and Lunar New Year so far. Um, and so, look, symbolism is important. Uh, I am supporting and pushing legislation for Lunar New Year, Eid, and Diwali, these are holidays celebrated by large millions of people in the United States, and they're some of the most important holidays of the year for many in the AAPI community. Uh, it would provide the opportunity for countless families uh, to celebrate with friends and loved ones uh, without added pressure of missing school uh, or work. And New York City could get off for some of these holidays, but the parents still have to work. So that's another gap that we're trying to fix with bills like this. Congresswoman Grace Meng, if people want to find out more about you and your work in the House, uh, where can they look? So my website is meng.house.gov. Uh, my Twitter handle and Instagram and Facebook are Rep Grace Meng, R-E-P Grace Meng. Great. Congresswoman Grace Mang of Queens, thank you so much for coming back and being here with us today on WBAI and have a great AAPI Heritage Month. Thank you so much for having me again.
You're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live via WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. A very quick reminder as we take on these important issues today. If you care about New York, if you care if it means something to you to have a radio station that talks about real problems with this city and how to make it a better place, please take a moment today to go to WBAI.org and lend your support. And remember... This is non-commercial, listener-supported WBAI, and we need your help. The station will not exist without you. That's plain and simple. WBAI is going to go off the air without the support of everyone who listens, all of you who are tuned in right now. Remember, most of us, Celeste and I included, are volunteers, and we work very hard to bring you the best programming and premium gifts as well. We do this for New York, but we can't keep going without New York, without New Yorkers. It only takes a few moments to support the kind of free speech, independent radio that you cannot get anywhere else. And remember, big business does not power WBAI. You do. We count on you every day, and we're counting on you today. Please, please, please take a few moments to go to WBAI.org today. Pledge your support. Stand up for free speech and free speech radio. That is WBAI.org. And by the way, you can also call if you'd prefer. Talk to someone. 212-209-2950. Once again, 212-209-2950. The phone lines are open. Please make that call today. This is an urgent call for help. Do not let corporate media become New York's only choice for radio. Thank you so much for supporting this station. This, of course, is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and this is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. That is our focus today. We just had a great conversation with Congresswoman Grace Meng, the first and only Asian American House member from the state of New York about some of the initiatives that she's working on from a national AAPI museum to making Lunar New Year holiday to having passed the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act and even talking about uh, dealing with mail theft, which is a, a huge issue right now for a lot of people, not just in Queens, but everywhere. So great to have her here on the program to discuss that. So to look further into the challenges facing Asian Americans when it comes to political participation, as we're talking about this Heritage Month, I had a chance to speak with Jerry Vadamala. He's director of the Democracy Program of the Asian American Legal Education Legal Defense and Education Fund. ALDEF conducts some of the most in-depth exit polling of Asian Americans throughout the country, provides voter assistance in real time, and represents the interests of the AAPI community in major redistricting decisions. So here is our conversation. Jerry, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you here on the program, and I'm really excited to hear more about your research. So uh, I know you guys did extensive uh, exit polling from the November 2022 midterms. And before we get into the details, can you just sort of broadly tell us why you did this and what you were trying to learn from it? Yeah, no, thanks for having us. Um, you know, we started this program back in 1988 in Manhattan's Chinatown, and there's really two main purposes of this program. One, unfortunately, as as it was in 1988, it still is somewhat true that the national media has ignored the Asian American electorate. So when the polling comes out, there's usually reporting leading up to an election on how whites are voting, how blacks are voting, how Latinos are voting, and other. So Asian Americans are usually excluded. So one thing we're trying to do here with this program is to identify the electorate 
identify who they're voting for, what issues are important to them. The hope is that elected officials and the national parties will then take this information and be able to better serve the needs of the electorate uh, and respond to the needs uh, if they want their votes. Uh, the other aspect is real-time voter protection. So we were in 13 states in Washington, D.C. doing the exit polling. We were poll monitoring in several other states as well. We want to make sure that every eligible voter is able to cast a ballot. So uh, the great thing about our program is that our volunteers are at the poll sites in real time. So if there is a problem, our goal is to resolve that at the poll site uh, right away so that the voter is able to cast a ballot if they're eligible. So I want to stay on, on some of what you were saying there for just a moment. You know, you're talking about how uh, Asian Americans kind of get lumped into this other category, but your research is really unique because of how you actually execute it and the ways in which you ask the questions and the languages in which you ask the questions. Can you talk a little bit about why this is so unique and how you're actually getting better information ostensibly because you're reaching more people? Yeah. So, you know, it, the few times Asians are included in national polling, sometimes the sample size is very small, you know, maybe just 300 or, or something like that. And it's usually in English only. And one thing you could see from our report is that such a large percentage of all the voters that we surveyed, over 5,000 voters in the midterm election, uh, was that such a large percentage were what we call limited English proficient. And that's identified as speaking English less than very well. So what's interesting about that is that if a voter is limited English proficient, they oftentimes will require some type of language assistance to actually cast a ballot. And the rate varies dramatically within the different Asian ethnic groups. South Asian voters typically have lower limited English proficiency rates. Um, I'm sorry, yeah, so that they usually don't need language assistance with the exception of the Bengali community. The Bangladeshi community has a very high limited English proficient rate. Uh, Korean, Chinese, Cambodian, uh, a lot of these other groups, Vietnamese, have very high limited English proficiency rates, some, some over 50%. Uh, so the cool thing about our survey, it's, it's in English and 11 different Asian languages. Uh, and our volunteers, all many of them have language ability, so they're able to interact with these voters to identify problems, but also to assist them in completing the survey. Uh, the other aspect of our program that's somewhat unique is the large number. Uh, we are in, as I mentioned, 13 states in Washington, D.C. Some states, it's, you know, some, some elections, it's even larger than that. And we have a very large sample size uh, of Asian American voters. And it's pretty cool. When you look at our report, you see the distribution. You know, the largest uh, segment of Asian American voters that we have is uh, from the Chinese community, right? Over, over about a third that are uh, Chinese Americans, followed by Asian Indian, and then it goes down the list. Uh, we have Korean, Bengali, Vietnamese, large, most of the large Asian groups in this country that we're able to uh, survey. We can see what's common between or among these voters and also what's different. Uh, well, so that's, really that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about, because I think a lot of times we see uh, Asian American or AAPI voters portrayed as this sort of monolith. The, there's an assumption that if you are Asian or you look Asian or have Asian heritage, you're going to feel the same way as somebody else who does, which obviously is not true. So I wanted to ask you about some of the uh, commonalities uh, you know, Asian American groups had with each other and maybe even with the broader 
electorate, but also some of the differences between groups. Like, did uh, Chinese Americans feel differently about certain things than Vietnamese Americans? Yeah, so that's that is one of the interesting interesting things with our survey. You could see generally there was strong Democratic support. So for uh, you know Joe Biden approval rating, as well as who they voted for Senate, for Governor, for House of Representatives. They were all above 60% voting for the Democratic candidate. And what's really interesting in some of these really close elections, like, for example, the some of the Senate elections in 2022, which determined the balance of power in the Senate, in a place like Nevada, that was very, very close. Asian Americans voted about two-thirds supported the Democratic candidate. And although the number of voters is small compared to the overall electorate, they actually made the difference and put the Democratic candidate over over the top and were a decisive factor in that election. And we saw that in different places like Georgia and, and other places. Um, so it's that's interesting to see the commonalities. But one thing that's interesting is the Vietnamese American uh, electorate. Generally, that's that's the one electorate that stands out when you look at our data. They have uh, the highest rate of registered Republican voters and generally favor Republican candidates in, in many of the elections that we covered. Um, the top issues seem to be very similar along uh, among all the different ethnic groups, uh, about uh, education and uh, jobs in the economy, health care. Uh, public safety was in our top four this time, and that's you know a reflection, I think, of what happened during the COVID times of this huge increase in uh, anti-Asian harassment and, and violence. And oftentimes the people that are perpetrating these uh, attacks and harassment, they don't know the difference if someone's Vietnamese or Chinese or Korean. If they present a certain way, they present as Asian, um, that usually makes no difference to someone who's trying to harass or attack them. I would also just say, we asked about legal access to abortion, uh, transgender protections, um, and several other uh, issue questions and there was pretty much strong support uh, for all these things, for transgender protections, for uh, access to legal uh, abortion, uh, as well as teaching a unit of uh, Asian American history in K through 12. So there's a lot of commonalities, some differences between the ethnic groups. But here's another ultra interesting thing is there's some regional differences between, you know, if you're in the Midwest or Northeast or in the South. You know, in the South, we see generally slightly more support for uh, Republican candidates, a little bit higher uptick in Republican registration. Texas was the only state uh, that we had a majority of uh, survey respondents that voted for the Republican candidate for governor. Um, so, you know, really some some interesting regional differences as well as ethnic differences. At the same time, a whole bunch of commonalities on some of these really what we could call like hot button issues on like abortion and transgender rights. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is Driving Forces. We're speaking with Jerry Vadamala. He is director of the Democracy Program at the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. So, Jerry, wanted to talk about, uh, we mentioned a little bit earlier, touched on the pandemic, but obviously a lot of Asian Americans experienced hostility, uh, perhaps 
overt harassment, if not actual physical violence uh, during the pandemic. Wondering if you got a sense from this research or other research you've done about whether that has shaped people's political opinions or willingness to participate in the political process. I think you mentioned public safety a moment ago. Yeah, that was that was for the first time in our top four of you know top issues influencing the vote for our House of Representatives. Uh, we ask that question every major election, all the all the midterms and presidential elections. Um, so I think that that factored into that. Uh, for like I said, first time that was in the top four. Um, in terms of you know what's motivating somebody to turn out, uh, that is you know I don't want to speculate. So I, you know I, I don't know for sure what the what that uh, was motivating folks to come out and vote. Um, one thing that's interesting to know, it's not from necessarily from our survey, is the large number of Asian American voters that vote early and also vote by mail. Um, you know, are, we're figuring out how to capture those voters in certain places like Las Vegas and in Florida. We were there during early voting. Um, but the rest of the, the places we were at, it was actually on election day. Uh, so I think Asian American voters, they, they have found different ways to vote. Uh, Partly, it may be affected by fear of um, harassment or intimidation at the poll site uh, or by uh, election workers. And we've had a long history of documenting Asian Americans being harassed and targeted inside the poll sites, uh, you know, as to prove their citizenship. I mean, how many voters come to the poll site with their passport or their birth certificate or their naturalization certificate? I mean, you're basically disenfranchising someone. And Asian Americans, unfortunately, have had a history, and it's still true today, unfortunately, of being perceived as foreign. Um, you know, if they're not speaking English, or even if they do speak English, just presenting as someone that's that looks foreign or assumed to be foreign, uh, that's something our voters have to have to deal with uh, every election. I want to talk a little more about that because I think that uh, you've done a lot of work on uh, in this survey and historically talking about the barriers that people experience, the barriers that. Asian Americans face when it comes to political participation, specifically voting that may extend to other things like participating in in uh, public discussions or public life, running for office, winning elected office. But talk a little more about some of the things that you heard most often, maybe about why people had a hard time exercising their legal right to vote. There's a whole bunch of things that happen every major election. Uh, one of the things that we see is language access is a big, big issue. I, I mentioned earlier that such a large percentage of our electorate are limited English proficient. Some some places around the country, including New York, uh, certain boroughs are covered under the language access provisions of the Voting Rights Act and require Asian language translated ballots as well as interpreters to be at the poll sites. So many jurisdictions that are covered, unfortunately, do not comply. Either they don't have the translated ballots, they're mistranslated, they don't have interpreters. And here's the other thing. If you cannot read the ballot, mark the ballot, or see the ballot, can't read it, mark it, or see it, the Voting Rights Act, the Federal Voting Rights Act, allows you to bring somebody with you. I can't tell you how many poll workers don't know this, and they prevent Asian American voters as well as other voters with disabilities uh, from being assisted by somebody of their choice inside the voting booth. Now, the only restriction is that the person cannot be your employer or union rep, right? Because they would tell you who to vote for. Many Asian Americans, it's their uh, minor child or grandchild that will come with them and assist them. You think most jurisdictions would comply with this? It's pretty easy to comply. Just allow them to be assisted. 
But we had places all over the country, and in particular Texas. Texas had actually had a state law that required all interpreters to be a registered voter in the county in which they were providing their service. So I just told you a moment ago, most Asian Americans bring their minor child or grandchild. Minor can't be a registered voter, right? So we actually had to challenge that in, in federal court and won and struck down that provision. Um, some of the listeners may not know this. Uh, there's all these voter suppression laws that are being passed across the country, and many of them criminalize you know, innocent mistakes. So, for example, Texas, we're challenging a law um, that was passed several years ago that would make it a crime to provide any assistance beyond just reading the ballot So, and translating the ballot. So if you, you know, were to explain what to do with the ballot, where to go, or anything beyond just a pure translation, a clarifying question, anything like that would be criminalized. Not only a fine, you could potentially go to jail. Uh, and it had a huge chilling effect on the folks that were willing to be interpreters. Obviously, you wouldn't want to do that if there's a chance you could go to jail. So we um, we actually successfully challenged part of that provision. We're still challenging the rest of the law. Uh, you know, th there's other parts of the law in, in other states that, uh, you know, it's a crime to give somebody a bottle of water when they're standing online. Um, so there's all these things that we have to fight against. But with Asian American voters, language access is a big problem. Being perceived as a foreigner, being requested or demanding that they provide uh, proof of citizenship in places where they um, are enforcing a, a, an ID requirement. Uh, sometimes they're only asking Asian American voters for this um, and not others, right? Erecting barriers for them uh, to vote. And then we also have the issue with the naming conventions. East Asian naming conventions is three names. And there's a question, okay, what's the first name? What's the last name? So, so many times when they get to the poll and their name is inverted, in the voter roll, so it doesn't show up. And if you believe you're a registered voter and your name is not there or it's incorrectly entered, maybe there's a hyphen where there's not supposed to be or vice versa, or one or two letters are misentered, um, the poll worker has discretion to determine whether the names are substantially similar enough to identify whether it's you or not. So, so many times Asian American voters, their name is not there or there's some problem and they get turned away. What's supposed to happen is they're supposed to be given what's called a provisional ballot or an affidavit ballot. And so many times that's that's not what happens and they're just turned away. Um, I'll say one last thing. Changing poll sites is a huge problem. So many of our voters, and this happens a lot in, in urban areas and places with a large number of voters of color, so many times they get to the poll and they're told this is not your poll site. And they're directed to another poll site where they're told again, they were at the wrong poll site, the first poll site was the correct one, or they'll go to the poll site and it's not open, it's a closed building. Uh, this happens all over the country and it's it's a real problem for so many voters, especially voters of color. We're talking to Jerry Vanamala of the uh, Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. And Jerry, you know, you've been doing this research for quite a long time. As you said, I'm just wondering, Given the fact that we have been aware of a lot of these problems for quite a while, do you get a general sense looking back at your research over time? Is any of this getting better? Is any progress being made in terms of making sure that people are not disenfranchised, that they actually can take advantage of the legal protections and the assistance that should be required for them when they go to vote? Or is, is this kind of not getting any better? Well, I, I, I want your listeners to know this. You know, this is it's been 10 years since the Shelby County Beholder Supreme Court decision 
that gutted the most effective provision of the Voting Rights Act that prevented a lot of these discriminatory voter suppression laws from actually being implemented. There is a full-on assault on these voter protections that we have under the Federal Voting Rights Act right now in the federal courts. Uh, we're waiting on a decision from a case out of Alabama that's going to further erode any protections that we've had. So the Voting Rights Act in 1965 was so monumental and it was referred to as the crown jewel of all the civil rights legislation because it actually was the most effective. And what you've seen, especially in the last several years, is this gutting and rolling back of those protections. All the gains that we've made, we've made by using the Federal Voting Rights Act and bringing lawsuits. I told you we sued Texas for their violation of the Federal Voting Rights Act. We sued numerous jurisdictions, including New York, where people might think is a pretty uh, progressive state, for not complying with uh, the protections of the Federal Voting Rights Act. We've been scratching and clawing to, to fight for the voters. We've made some progress, but the whole, one of the whole points of the Voting Rights Act was to recognize that when you litigate these cases, they can take years. As soon as you win, if you are in a jurisdiction that's trying to disenfranchise voters, they'll come up with something else. And then you have to litigate that. It's whack-a-mole. And it doesn't work. That's why we passed the Federal Voting Rights Act in 1965 to stop any discriminatory voting change from happening before it's implemented. And the, the burden of proof was on the jurisdictions to show that any voting change would not have a discriminatory impact on, on people of color. Since that's been rolled back, it's been, as I mentioned, 10 years now, we see this all over the country in Georgia and Texas and North Carolina. I mean, there was a case where they said they were targeting black voters with surgical precision. And it's a conservative court that's saying that. We're in a real bad spot right now for voting rights. Um, and to think that, you know, they're trying to criminalize giving somebody a bottle of water when they're online and all these other really crazy voting suppression laws that have been passed in all these places, it's whack-a-mole. We're doing our best. We've made progress in some places, but there's still so much work to do. And as you see the census numbers coming out, you know, folks that want to disenfranchise voters, they see the demographics. They see the writings on the wall, the writings on the writing on the wall. And that motivates them to pass these voter suppression laws. So there's only so many of us. There's, you know, my organization and our, our peers that are working tirelessly to fight against these voter suppression laws. But we really need to restore the Voting Rights Act. That was the most effective provision that we had. And uh, we're just going in the really in the wrong direction, uh, especially in the last several years. Jerry Von Mell, if people want to find out more about your work, if they want to get involved or educate themselves, where can they go? Where can we send them? So you go to aldef.org, www.aaldef.org. Um, there's a place where you can contact us. We are always looking for volunteers to help us on election day. We have attorneys, law students, non-attorneys, you know, students, just community volunteers. You don't need to speak an Asian language. Uh, I want to be clear, our survey targets Asian American voters because we're not polled by national media, but the voter protection aspect, that is for all voters. Any voter of any race has a problem. We are there to protect them in real time on election day. So I encourage anyone that wants to help out. The minimum commitment for us is three hours on election day. It's one of the best things you can do uh, for your community. Um, and 
we, we really hope if you are going to do something, please consider volunteering with us and, and helping your community and your fellow voters. Jerry Vadamala, thank you so much for joining us here today on Driving Forces and uh, helping us mark Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Thanks so much for having me. You're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live via WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, here with Jeff Simmons. And that was Jerry Vatamala of the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, or ALDEF. Um, please remember, you know, we want to use this time wisely, and that means we want to remind you of the value of listening to WBAI and supporting WBAI, because we can only bring you guests like Jerry Vatamala from the worlds of politics and public policy, culture, music, the arts, and more with your help. So please go ahead and take a few moments today to support the station and go to WBAI.org and make a pledge to the BAI Buddies program. That's WBAI.org. And again, if you like to talk to someone, you can call 212-209-2877. I'm sorry. You can call 212-209-2950. Once again, that's 212-209-2950. And again, Celeste and I have talked about this. We have a gift for you. If you donate $50 today, you can get a copy of Carmageddon, Why Cars Are Making Life Worse and What to Do About It. Or you could just go ahead and make a donation and just take that tax break. Remember, WBAI is a 501c3 nonprofit, so that makes your generous gift tax deductible. Once again, go to WBAI.org, lend your support to Free Speech Radio today. You can call 212-209-2950 or go to WBAI.org and click the Give button. Look for the green button. Again, 212-209-2950 or go to WBAI.org. And remember, again, we want to keep emphasizing this. This is not commercial radio. This is not corporate radio. This is your radio station. WBAI is a non-commercial, non-profit station that cares about the community. But we can only keep WBAI going if you step up and lend your support. Now listen, it takes $17,000 a month, every month, to pay the rent on our broadcast tower at four times square. That's just to stay on the air. That has nothing to do with all the other bills we have to pay to be on the air 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in one of the most expensive media cities in the world. You know, we're not asking for a lot. If you can give $20 a month, just $20 a month, you are doing your part to preserve WBAI's unique programming on politics, culture, music, arts, women's issues, health, gender, education, and much, much more. So if you're already giving, we thank you. And we ask you, please think about giving a little more. And if you're not giving, now is the time to start. The situation is urgent. We need your help now. Please go to WBAI.org and join with us to help keep independent media alive in New York. Now, Jeff, you and I have been doing this program for, what, four years now? Is that does that sound about right? Approximately. I think it's a little longer. The, pande- the pandemic makes me lose kind of track of time. I know. Right, right. So, okay. So I think we're but, in but, our fourth year, maybe. 
But, you know, it's funny because I wanted to bring this up today. I know it is not the theme of the show, but I do want to bring up something because you will find interesting. You may not know about this, but regular listeners of this show know that there was a week that I was off and you did a whole show focused on rats, if I'm correct. I did. And we did, we did one on sanitation later on. But one thing that got announced today, I don't know if you know this, Celeste, but the city, New York City, announced that it's now going to move towards ha- requiring city restaurants to put their trash in containers wow. as opposed to the bags. Wow. So this is going to affect 40,000 food-related businesses here in the city. I just bring that up because you did a whole show on that. That's an interesting development. That is very much an interesting development. And see, Jeff, that I think I'm, I'm super glad you brought that up, actually, because, look, we're not going to sit here and necessarily take credit for that happening. But what we do want to bring home, <laughs> and I think what, what Jeff's point brings home is that it's really important to have an independent radio station that looks at these issues that doesn't just, you know, throw out a tweet or a quick headline or write a brief about it. You know, we really jump into these issues. We really try to research them and write wisely about them and bring you guests that you can hear from who actually know what's going on, who can actually tell the whole story and give the subjects that we care about the time that they need. And all of that is geared towards making a better city for all of us. But again, we can only do this every day with your help please today take a moment go to wbai.org or call 212-209-2950 please give to this station as generously as you can please consider becoming a recurring donor through our bai buddies program we have a lot of wonderful premiums for you to choose from including uh the carmageddon book but also we have lots and lots of choices right on wbai.org Please take a moment today. Go to WBAI.org. Join with us to keep independent media alive and well in New York City. We want to thank our guests today, Congresswoman Grace Meng of Queens and Jerry Vadamala, Director of the Democracy Program of the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Thanks to our engineer, Reggie Johnson. Thanks to you, our listeners. And the biggest thanks of all to everybody who's taking a moment this hour, this hour, to go to WBAI.org and become a BAI in the name of this show, Driving Forces. Jeff, what do you have coming up? Um, I will be back here on Sunday morning with City Watch with my co-host Carlos Menchaca, 8 in the morning on Sunday. Get your coffee ready. We're going to focus on housing issues in New York State. And then Celeste and I are going to be back with you next Thursday at this time as WBAI begins its two-week fundraising campaign. So we're going to be speaking with Ria Wong of Ria Wong Consulting about trends in giving. Really, Kind of get a sense of what inspires people to give, what causes are generating the most dollars now. And then we'll be joined by Aubrey Therian of the nonprofit neurodiverse theater company Epic Players. She'll be offering our listeners tickets to see their upcoming production of Into the Woods. And she's also going to bring on one of the actors. So please make a point of tuning in to Driving Forces next Thursday at 5 o'clock. If you missed any part of today's program, you can hear it in full by subscribing to Driving Forces via Apple, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This has been Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston and Jeff Simmons. We are going to leave you this Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month show with a song from one of my favorite Asian American artists, Connie Lim, also known as Milk. Enjoy and keep it right here on WBAI for more great programming. See you on the radio.
have a sequel and my rent would be much cheaper Jenny wouldn't hate her figure when she's smaller when she's bigger she'd be kissing on the mirror and the wi-fi would be quicker everybody would be psycho fewer cars and more bicycles no more fighting for survival you would hear this song on Would be a source of pride. You've got beauty. 